0: So chapter 18 of Matthew, we've gone as far as verse 15. That's where we're going to pick it up and begin reading. And let's pray. Father, help us to remember to turn our, our ringers off our phones um, and to be free from distractions. And it's just, it's just a part of the day in which we live in. But, Lord, we do want to be focused on this section of Scripture that deals with a subject that's not easy, and that is forgiveness. So we want to be attentive. We want to be teachable. We want to be humbled before you. And, Lord, receive from you, knowing that your word is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, for our benefit. And, Lord, so I just pray that you would bless this time as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we open up chapter 18, you recall that the disciples had come to Jesus and asked them the the question, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We know from another gospel that they actually, as they were coming into Capernaum, that they had been arguing about this on the road. So as Jesus gets this question from them, I find it very intriguing that Jesus didn't rebuke them. He's not short with them, but he actually answers them. And you recall, if you are with us in our study, as we opened up chapter 18, that Jesus would take a child and set that child in the midst of them and said, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So you come in childlike faith, Humbling yourself, recognizing your need for the Savior of the world. You can't come in pride. You can't come in arrogance. You can't come in your self-reliance. Um, and and um, you need to come humbling yourself, recognizing your need for the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, to be forgiven of sin. So to come into the kingdom of heaven, and then if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, then you need to humble yourself as a child. And whoever receives one of these children like this in my name receives me. So we're to continue in humility. We're to continue in childlikeness, that is, receiving the little ones. And I think it's more than just those who are young, we see the heart of the Lord towards children. Of course we do. But those who are young in a faith, those who are, their faith is young, it's fragile. He gives a warning then, don't stumble them. And he goes on to say, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better of him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, Jesus didn't say that would happen. He said it'd be better if that happened. So we really see the heart of the Lord of stumbling at the faith of a little one, of a child. And then he gives the parable of the lost sheep, that there's a shepherd that has 100 sheep, one strays off. He leaves the 99 and goes after the one and brings the one back when that lost sheep is found then there's great rejoicing by the shepherd. Another gospel tells us that all of heaven rejoices. So we really see the heart of the Lord towards the one who is lost. Uh, It's God's desire that none should perish but all come to repentance. And we need to keep that in mind, that there's a lost world out there, and we saw the mission of Jesus as he would say that he came uh, to those who are lost. And that is his mission that he defines for us, and we get to be ones to be light and truth for those who are lost all around us. People are linked to us in our lives at work, family members, neighbors, whoever it might be. So now as we continue, pick it up in verse 15, as Jesus is saying, don't offend one of these little ones. Now this is what you do if you're offended by a brother. So not only talking about humility, but also now we're going to see that he's going to talk about church discipline and then forgiveness as well. So let's pick it up at verse 15. As Jesus says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So Jesus has given us some very specific guidelines for the body of Christ. If someone has sinned or offended you, then you are to go to them first. Not to everyone else, not to social media. It doesn't mean that you get a posse to gather around you to be on your side. But you are to go to them directly and privately and tell them their fault. Now, when you do go, you need to have scripture in hand to back up your accusation against that individual. And remember that this is a process here that is given to us. And there's also a proper attitude that you want to have. There is to be an attitude of, I want to give clarity. I want to give understanding. I desire for that, that sinning brother, that sinning sister to repent. And if possible, for there to be restoration and reconciliation. So it's not an attitude of, I'm going to thump this guy, and I can't wait to rake him over the coals and rip him up and down. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, speak the truth in love. Verse 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that in, may impart grace to the hearers. So we can't let anger and malice and wrath and bitterness and being vengeful be the motive of why we're going to somebody. And Jesus here, he says, in this process, if your brother receives what you have said, then you've gained your brother. In other words, that's the desired outcome of the Lord. For you to gain your brother, for them to repent, for there to be a coming together, an understanding, and as that happens, there uh, needs to be going no further in the matter. And what that does is it helps stop the gossip and the spreading of hearsay, which can be so destructive. I think a good example of that we see in the Old Testament, remember when Nathan came to David after David sinned with Bathsheba. And Nathan said, David, you have sinned. You committed the sin, and David confessed it, and he repented. Well, if step one is not received, then there is step two. What you are to do is to take you know, one or two witnesses with you, And then once again, confront that individual with their sin. Now, that step does a couple things. Number one, the individual being confronted will hopefully understand that this is serious, that it's beginning to affect other people. It's not, well, that first person came to me and I'll just blow them off and they just don't like me and all of this. Secondly, you provide witnesses who can verify the facts concerning this person's sin and unwillingness to repent from their sin. And thirdly, what it does is it eliminates false accusations and hearsay. Well, so-and-so said this, and I heard this from so-and-so. And so if the sinning person listens and repents, then again, there can be restoration. And again, that is the desire for it to be repentance. If there can't be restoration, not just intimidation. This isn't done to intimidate the person. You know, to, to, to just come and bully somebody. And if there is no repentance, then the matter goes before the church. I don't believe that Jesus is saying it has to go before the whole church. Now, there are times when the church has to be warned. But it goes before the leadership. It goes before the pastoral staff, the leadership of the church, the elders, the pastors. And let the church know that you followed the first two steps and there's been no repentance. And there's still, as that individual is confronted by the church, then there's still a chance for repentance. But at that point, if they refuse, then Jesus says that you are to, you know, uh, let them be to you a heathen and tax collector. And that is like an unbeliever. Now, I have never in my years of ministry personally seen anyone continue in fellowship after the first two steps. And one of the reasons is this there are so many churches that people can move from church to church, and usually that's what they do. Another point that I'd like to make is this is not the only guideline to dealing with a sinning brother or somebody who's coming in and causing harm in the church. Listen, this is a subject I don't like to talk about that much. It's not a fun subject to talk about, but it is necessary because as a part of God's word for you as an individual, for we as a church, and there have been times where we've had to deal with people that have come in to poison the church, that have you know, harmed the church, uh, have come against the leadership, whatever it might be, and we've tried to deal with them in the way that God would have us to. And there's other guidelines given to us, in the scripture, when it comes to church discipline, remember First Corinthians chapter five. Remember that young man that that it was being boasted that he was involved immorally with his father's wife. Paul said, "Why are you boasting in that?" And this is a sin that's not even named among the Gentiles. You need to to get him out because it's poisoning the church. Don't you know that a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump? So Paul, in that case, said you need to get him out of fellowship. Second Corinthians tells us that Paul says, now you need to receive him back. That him being isolated, he's repented, apparently. You need to receive him back with love. And, and so Paul writes about that instance and that individual that was sinning. We know that Paul writes in one of the pastoral epistles in Titus, He says, reject a divisive person after the first and second warning. Somebody who's coming in and just causing division and harm in the body of Christ. There's also guidelines when it comes to an accusation against an elder or when it comes to false teachers or those, as Paul would write to Timothy, that those who say that godliness is a means of gain that you are to withdraw from. Those who are teaching this prosperity stuff that we even see today. So there's different guidelines given to us. And then we see, that he talks about the authority of the church in verse 18 through 20. That assuredly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, there are those who will, of course, use these verses here, and they will say, see the assurance, if you just have enough faith, you'll receive from the Lord if you just name it and claim it and ask for it. But we need to always keep everything in context. What has Jesus been talking about? He's talking about dealing with a sinning brother or sister, an individual. And I believe what Jesus is telling us, that it is a process That is to be done humbly and in accordance to the word of God. As two or three are gathered praying, seeking the Lord, it is binding in the eyes of God. It speaks of the authority of the church that the church has in dealing with matters where sin is flagrant, where it's a problem, where it's coming into the church. In a group of people, the leadership, two or three in my name, he doesn't say 20 or all, you know, 700 people or whatever it is, that I will be there in the midst. And that is the key. It's in according to the nature and character of Jesus. Agreeing to seek the Lord in prayer, desiring to do according to God's word, you gather in a manner that Jesus would endorse, knowing that God's desire is to work as they come together to leadership and as they are praying together and seeking the Lord together, agreeing together. It's going to keep certain Christians from just throwing their weight around. And unfortunately, there are those who will come in and they will bring harm to the church. And part of the responsibility that I have as a shepherd is not only to feed you, but to guard, to guard, to protect. So let's ask in his name. It takes real wisdom and discernment. And according to the Lord's character and nature, it's done decently and in order. And again, the right heart and humility and desiring for there to be repentance, for there to be restoration, and to gain that brother, that individual. And so verse 21, then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him up to seven times? So Peter comes to Jesus and asks a good question. How often should I forgive someone? And Peter says, up to seven times. Now, I don't know why Peter picked seven. It was the rabbis that consistently and pretty much universally taught that you are only required to forgive somebody up to three times. The book of Amos, the Old Testament prophet Amos, that you read in his book, three transgressions, and the fourth, I will not turn away its punishment. So they said, see, only up to three times. So perhaps Peter is throwing out seven times. Maybe he's trying to sound spiritual. Maybe he's trying to be graceful. I don't know. But this is how Jesus responds in verse 22. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Jesus would say to Peter, Peter, you're to forgive 70 times seven. And and by the way, a little side note for you thinkers, for you students of the word 70 times seven, does that remind you of anything? Of course it does. Daniel chapter 9. That we see in that prophecy that 70 times 7 or 70 weeks are determined for your people, for your holy city. To finish the transgression. To make an end to sins. To make reconciliation for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. It's a study for another time. But I do find it interesting that Jesus uses that number 70 times 7. Peter I don't think the Lord wanted Peter to figure out, okay, seven times 70. That's 490 times. But the point that the Lord is making is you keep on forgiving. And forgiving is not a matter of mathematics, but it's a matter of having a forgiving heart and a spirit and making the choice to forgive. And now Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant in verse 23 to the end of the chapter. We'll read it and then we'll kind of sum things up uh, as we look at that in verse 23. Therefore, telling this parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king Who wanted to settle accounts with his servants? And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. And there, the servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And then the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. In verse 28, But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, Who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. his trespasses. Very sobering parable, isn't it? As he tells of this parable of a king who forgives a servant of a large debt. 10,000 talents. Now, I don't know exactly how much that is. I've read different you know, uh, amounts uh, in today's value. It's probably more than millions of dollars. Is probably speaking of billions of dollars. Even some have suggested trillions of dollars. The point is, is that the servant could not pay back the debt even in his lifetime. As we talk about this principle of forgiveness, listen. It is very important for us to remember that we could not pay back the debt in and of ourselves for our forgiveness, for our sins. The wages of sin is death. And there wasn't enough money in the world to redeem you to God. Not with corruptible things. Peter writes that you've been redeemed with the precious blood of the Lamb. Not corruptible things such as gold and silver. We cannot pay back the debt to sin. And there are unfortunately some people that they really believe that if I am good enough that I can pay back that debt. Or if I do enough religious things that I can pay back that debt. And even throughout the church age, it has been times when people have thought that, you know, uh, I'll you know, do these things and that'll pay for the debt of my sin. There's nothing that we could do in and of ourselves to pay back the debt for sin. It's only by the blood of Jesus Christ. Are we clear on that? Because you're going to have conversation with people that think, well, I'm okay because I've done good things or I've served in the church or I gave to the church. Listen, the only way that our sins could be atoned for and we be redeemed, is that God sent his son Jesus to go to that cross, as we talked about last weekend, and he was pinned to that cross, and then he cried out, it is finished, that I paid the price, I've done the work, that he took our sins upon himself, and he took the judgment that you and I deserve, and God had compassion on you and me, and he loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son to come to this world to die for your sin and for my sin, And so we could not do that. And that's why we need to keep that in the forefront of of this whole subject of forgiveness. Remember, as you read the book of Leviticus, all the sacrifices that were done, the sin sacrifice, the trespass sacrifice, it was done for the individual, it was done for families, it was done for the priests, it was done for the nation, and it wasn't enough, they had to keep doing it over and over and over again, because it only covered sin, Kofar in the Hebrew, until the one, Jesus Christ, as the book of Hebrews declares, came and died once and for all for the sins of humanity, for your sins and for my sins, and his sacrifice was superior. So Jesus did it all, and it is finished. And as I said last week, don't put a question mark where God puts a period. It is finished. And we can be so grateful for that, that, Lord, thank you. And through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I now have a living hope. I've been forgiven. I have the hope of heaven. So in this consideration, which we talk about being forgiven, and in this parable, here's the king's, forgives the servant of a huge debt that he could never in his lifetime pay back. And so that servant went out and found another one of the, his fellow servants that owed him 100 denarii. A denarii is a day's wage, a little over three months' wages, much smaller debt. And he confronts him, Uh, the second servant falls down and said the exact same thing the first servant said to the king, have patience with me. Uh, I'll pay you. Uh, and, And we see that the servant, the first servant, who was forgiven by the king, it grabs him by the throat, has no compassion, no desire to work it out. He's full of wrath and throws the second servant into jail until he could pay the debt. But here's the problem. When you're in jail... You're not working. You can't pay back the debt. The fellow servants saw it, and it says they were greatly distressed, and it was told to the king, and the first servant, of course, was given to the torturers, and it's a very sobering parable that is told to us. So I want to wrap things up, a couple things that are very important, so please don't tune out, because hopefully it's going to minister to you. But as we've been in this chapter, as we finish looking at this parable, that first of all, remember, Jesus has been talking about in chapter 18, humility. You must become as a little child, come in childlike faith. When it comes to dealing with the sinning brother, again, it takes humility. It takes having compassion. You go to him for the sake of forgiveness, that there may be restoration. You may gain your brother. You keep on forgiving, seven times 70. Remember how much you have been forgiven. How merciful God has been to us. One commentator said this, that it is pride and a critical hard spirit that will uh, that will light the torch of conflict and oil the wheel of strife. And if a person who comes to that place of humility and says, Lord, You've forgiven me. You've forgiven me, Lord. You've shown compassion to me. You've been merciful to me. And your word now tells me that I need to extend that to my brother. And in those seasons, and I think all of us will go through a season, there are times where we become bitter towards someone, we become angry, and we think we have good reason, unforgiving. Here's something for you to do. As the weather begins to warm up, go take a walk. And as you take a walk, look up. And remember how much you have been forgiven. How much it cost our Heavenly Father to send His Son to die for you because of His love for you. And it wasn't because we deserved it. That while we are yet sinners, God proved His love for us. Christ proved His love for us. That He came and He died for us. Romans chapter 5. Remember how much you have been forgiven. Secondly, I think that this chapter really touches on the value of people in God's eyes. Don't stumble that child. The shepherd goes after the lost sheep and rejoices when he is found. You go to that brother, you forgive others. And whenever we begin to look down on people or we say that, you know, blankety blank, whatever, remember this that that person is valuable to God. I'm not saying excuse their sin. I'm not saying, you know, any of those things. But remember this, that God's desire is the loss would come to him. It's God's desire that that person would come to the saving knowledge of the truth. It's God's desire that we would give them truth and speak the truth in love, that they may come to repentance and that there may be a restoring relationship with the Lord and also with one another. Thirdly, this is important. When there is unforgiveness, when there is unforgiveness in the body of Christ, when there is unforgiveness in a family, it always brings sadness and grief and distress, and it happens all the time. When somebody digs in their heel and says, I'm not going to forgive, it comes into the body of Christ and it brings division, and it brings harm to the body of Christ, And relationships are severed and strained and fractured because of it. It happens in families. And that's what happened here with this servant. The others saw it and they were distressed. They were grieved by that. So remember that it does bring harm to others when there is unforgiveness. And then fourthly, oh, this is so important. You forgive not for the sake of the one who did you wrong, but you do it for your sake. You say, what do you mean? Forgiveness is a choice. But I also know that forgiveness, and we see the imperative to forgive in God's word. People come to me, well, I only forgive if they repent. That's not what it says here. But it's a choice that I'm going to forgive that person, and I think what God has called us to do, I really believe it's the hardest thing to do in our Christian lives is to forgive somebody who has really hurt you. And I know that some of you, many of you, you've been hurt by somebody. You've been abused. You've been neglected. You've been, you know, lied to. You've been abandoned. You've been betrayed. And you say it hurts. And they keep doing it. And forgiveness, what it does is that we make a choice to do it. This one was handed over to the torturers. And as a child of God, having all of our sins forgiven by the blood of Jesus, if you're one that says in your heart, I just want to strangle them in my bitterness and unforgiveness, it will end up strangling you. There will be torment in your soul. And I've seen it happen before. It will rob you of your joy. It has happened to me in short seasons when somebody... Has really hurt me, and I'm just being honest with you. When somebody's come against my family, the hurts that I've experienced, if I continue in that, in bitterness and anger, that, that it robs me of my joy and my peace and my compassion and understanding of God's wonderful forgiveness and mercy to me. And when we make that choice to forgive. YOU'RE GIVING IT TO THE LORD you're not excusing that person's sin. You're not justifying it. You're not enabling them to continue. It doesn't mean as we make a choice to forgive that automatically that that relationship has to be reconciled and restored because that person may still want to harm you. There needs to be a separation and that person is toxic to you or that situation. But you choose to forgive because, Lord, I'm going to give it to you because you can deal with them and their sin and you said vengeance his mind saith the lord and what the lord is saying in that is don't you mess with it because you can't handle it and he can handle it and he'll take care of it but second of all it will bring freedom to you because that person no longer has power over you it's not excusing their sin it's not being a doormat for them to continue to hurt you and the hurt will be there. But I believe as is the hardest thing that God has called you to do. I'll be honest with me. I'm not holy enough just to do it at once. I have to go day by day, over and over again, bit by bit, and say, Lord, help me to forgive. Help me to forgive. You called me to do it. Help me to forgive. And it's a supernatural work of the Lord. It has to be. Because I'm not holy enough in my own strength to do it. And listen, he will not call you to do something that he won't enable you to do. And you will see the joy and the peace and the freedom coming back as you choose to say, Lord, it is yours. I'm giving it to you. Help me to forgive. And the next day, help me to forgive. And the next day, help me to forgive. And Lord, bring me to that point. And to heal emotionally, spiritually. You'll find he'll show up. And he'll help you. I don't want to diminish hurt that people have gone through, tremendous hurt. But you don't want to be bound up with that bitterness and that anger. I've seen people go through life just being angry and bitter because they would not forgive. Don't let that person have power over you but you give it to the Lord into his hands and allow him to do that supernatural work of the Spirit in your life. So, Father, thank you. These are difficult subjects to talk about, but, Lord, we thank you that we can get instruction from your word and hope. We thank you. Lord, that as you call us to do things, you'll enable us to do it by your Holy Spirit. And I just want to pray for those who are here this morning that there's hurt, there's real pain. There has been anguish. But Lord, I pray you bring healing to them. I pray that you bring comfort to them. And Lord, I just pray that they would hear your voice saying, I am to forgive and a choice to do it over and over, day by day, bit by bit, so they don't get tangled up in bitterness and, and wrath and anger. Lord, we want to be free to move forward. And we know that you're a big God. You can deal with people. You can deal with situations to keep us in that place of safety. You haven't called us to bondage, but to peace. So, Lord, I pray for those who are going through such things that you would help them. And this is where Christianity is real, by the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts, because we can't do it in our own flesh and energies. We thank you that you sent your son to die on a cross for us. That he took the punishment for us on that cross because of his love and compassion for us. That none of us could pay back that debt of sin. Only Jesus, the perfect lamb of God who went to the cross and bore our sins upon himself and then cried out, it is finished. He was put into a tomb and he rose again and he validated that he is truly the son of God who conquered sin and death. No one else, nothing else. It is coming in childlike faith, humbling ourselves and coming to Him. And if that's you, anyone who's listening, that if you've not made a commitment to Jesus Christ, He is your salvation. And the invitation is for you to come right now, to be forgiven, to become a child of God, to ask Him into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior, to be born again by the Spirit of God. He loves you. And as you come sincerely in your heart, you can pray that, Jesus, I come and ask you to forgive me of my sins. I come as a sinner, and I now turn to you, asking for forgiveness, believing that you died for me and you're alive, you rose again, to sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I want to know you and walk with you We thank you for this new beginning and bringing me into the family of God. In Jesus' name. And for all of us, may there be a freeing as we're called to forgive. Help us, Lord, to hear your voice and not just be hearers of the word, but doers as you enable us and help us. Bless everyone here now as we go our way. In Jesus' name.